is, you might recall that I last looked at the beginning of Ruth with you um, just under a year ago, but it may be that not many of you remember that. So in very brief compass, we're dealing here with a family that lived in Bethlehem. But we're in the days of the judges, and uh, that was marked by spirals of disobedience by God's people. They would start with the best of intentions, they would be led astray into sin, and the Lord would discipline them, often by foreign nations coming and uh, conflict, cry out to the Lord, and in his mercy he would provide a judge. The judge would organize and lead the people, and uh, there would be repentance on their part, and then the cycle sadly would begin again, and the quality of the judges tends to decline through the period of the judges. At some stage while this is happening, there was a famine in the land. God had warned the people that he'd made a covenant with them. If they kept the covenant, there would be much blessing. If they turned their back on the covenant, there would be curses. And one of the curses would be famine. So the picture we get in verse 1 of chapter 1 is of a land under judgment, And there's a young family, Um, his name is Elimelech, and he's got a wife, Naomi, and two sons, Marlon and Kilian. And they need to decide as a family what they're going to do in the face of famine. Now, famine, natural disasters, and conflict drive mass migrations. And we've seen some of the largest migrations in history in the last couple of centuries. But in this case, this family make the decision that they're going to move. Um, Not a huge movement, a movement of 50 miles or more, but they're going to move out of Israel into a land called Moab. Moab historically had been unsupportive and in fact aggressive towards Israel at various stages. And as a result, the Lord had told the people that they were to have nothing to do with Moab. And if Moabites came to live in Israel, they were forbidden from entering the temple or playing any significant role in the life of the nation. So they were, they were on the, the, the pretty unacceptable list, Moabites. There was history of Moabite women leading Israeli men astray and the Israeli men losing their faithful obedience of God and so on. So Moab was was a a blacklisted country. (laughs) But Elimelech and Naomi made the decision that they would emigrate there because in Moab there appeared to be food, and back home in Bethlehem there was famine. So at one level I don't want to underplay the challenge that they faced. Um, Joe and I were blessed by the Lord with two young children, If we had faced famine and there was another nation not that far away that we could move to where there would at least be food to feed our children, I can understand the pressure that they felt. But in this case, they did so in direct rebellion against God's direction. His direction was to be his people in his land under his law. And Naomi and Elimelech decided to break the law, to leave the land, and to go to 
a foreign country that the Lord had, had banned them from effectively. So anyway, they went out there, and in Moab, the two boys grew, and uh, the sons took Moabite wives. There were a series of tragedies while they were in Moab. First of all, Elimelech dies. And uh, perhaps, you know, at an emotional level, we can appreciate that that would be dreadful. But in these circumstances, it's much worse because this is a patriarchal society. They're foreigners living in a foreign country. Um, to lose the man of the household left them very vulnerable. But the two sons took Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. And then having initially decided that they would visit while there was famine, they choose to stay for a while, and then they appear to settle They lived there, verse 4, about 10 years. But now further tragedy, the two sons die. So you're left with just a fell household. Um, An Israelite woman, Naomi, a significant person um, from the town of uh, Bethlehem. If you look in verse 2, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, so significant family. So there's one Israelite woman and two young Moabitesses. And now there's a crisis. What are they going to do? Um, there's a decision by Naomi that they're going to return to Israel, but she recognizes that for her two daughters-in-law, this could be a really bad move. Um, some of you here have moved to the UK from a foreign country, and perhaps you felt some of the difficulty of being somebody from a different culture and background in the UK, I'm told that we British are very cold, that we're not warm and friendly, generally speaking, um, that we can appear very standoffish, um, certainly compared with other cultures in the world. We enjoy quite a big personal distance, so don't come too close to me, please, and uh, so on. So there are all kinds of social issues around that. Um, But Naomi recognizes that taking two Moabitesses back into Israel, to Bethlehem, for them, could be really wretched. They're sort of forbidden people. What future is there for them in Israel? So she tries to encourage them to leave and go back to their own people. Um, <clears throat> one of them, Orpah, decides she'll do that. Verse 15, she says to Ruth, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But something extraordinary has happened in Ruth. Um, Ruth, for reasons that aren't obvious in the text, but are evidently the case, has decided that she wishes to become a proselyte to the uh, Jewish faith. And so we have this extraordinary undertaking from verse 16, who said, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. It's a massive covenantal promise and undertaking that Ruth enters into with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And I want to suggest to you 
that it is a wonderful picture of what the Old Testament calls chesed love, that is, faithful covenant love, much more than just a passing moment, a fleeting emotion. This is a settled, lifelong determination to keep faith and to show love in whatever circumstances, right up to the point of death. It's an extraordinary undertaking, it really is. And whatever else we say about Naomi, there must have been something in Naomi's life that made this appear to Ruth the appropriate, wise thing to do. She had the alternatives of Moab without Israel's God, Yahweh, or Israel without any of her family and culture and so on, but with Yahweh. And for her, the maths was very straightforward. She rejected Moab and all its ways, and they had a wretched religious system with Chemosh and various other dreadful deities that demanded all kinds of human sacrifice and so on. She chose Yahweh and estrangement from her family and friends and culture. For her, that made absolute sense, and so she's determined to do it. And verse 18, when Naomi saw she was determined to go with her, she said, she said no more. So that's where we're at. Um, that was what I shared with you uh, a year ago. <clears throat> and now we come to the passage we read. Now, can you please think yourself into this? Um, Joe and I are moving from Aldershot to Hayes. It's about 40 miles. It's less than they were moving. They were moving about 50 miles or so. Um, we're finding it extraordinarily traumatic. And, you know, we're not moving to a foreign culture, although some would argue that Hayes is a foreign culture to all the shop. But no, anyway, um, just the whole business of moving and packing and downsizing and leaving friends and moving to somewhere new and, oh, it's just, oh. Um, these are two very vulnerable women, one young, one in relative terms old, who can carry only what they can walk with, from Moab back to Bethlehem. For one of them, this is a wretched walk. She feels that she left Bethlehem full. Husband, sons, prospects, hope. All of that's been shattered. And she's coming back now empty. What has she got to come back to? Next to nothing. Whereas she was a significant personage, it appears, she's coming back almost a refugee from a foreign country with all the overtones of the fact that she deserted her people when they were in need in order to look after herself and her family. So that's the older woman coming back. It's a walk of shame. Every step brings her closer to that dreadful moment when she will walk through the gates, the, the single gated entrance, into the town of Bethlehem. And uh, the, the gates, there were several um, uh, sort of like little shops and so on there. It was the sort of shopping mall of, of the town. 
and it's where all the elders met to transact business and so on. The gates were the place where people would gather. She had to come back after 10 years away in her ruined state and run the gamut of everybody watching. That's Naomi. Ruth is a Moabitess, if you like, sworn enemy of Israel. She's coming as a foreigner. She's left everything behind. She has nothing in Bethlehem, nothing. She has just what she wears on her clothes, on her back. And she's coming in an attempt to start a new life in a foreign country with no money, no credit, no saleable skills. For her, every step takes her away from the known and the usual into the unknown and the foreign. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. (coughs) Excuse me. And when they came to Bethlehem, (coughs) the whole town was stirred because of them. (coughs) The original there translates stirred. That's a perfectly good translation. But it means everything started to buzz. Um, I don't know if you've had that experience, that you walk in somewhere and there's a bit of a silence. And then everybody goes, and you know it's all about you. That's exactly what's happening to them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Ten years, ten years of loss, death, hardship, widowhood. They barely recognize her. Is this Naomi? And she says to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi Pleasant when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, I hope I've helped us to think ourselves just a little bit into Naomi's situation. What can we say about this? I think the first thing we can say is Naomi is being very real. Now, if I come up to you after the service and I say, hello, how are you? What are you going to say? Most of what you say, uh, I'm fine, thanks. I say, how's your week been? And you'll say, oh, it was okay. Week was okay and so on. The reality is that there may be real things that you're struggling with, real difficulties that you've had. But you don't feel the relationship with me is strong enough so that it's appropriate for you to share with me the real difficulties and challenges you're facing. And I understand that. And in our culture, of course, um, you you don't burden people you're meeting for the first time uh, with all your troubles and so on. But for those of you who know one another better, for those of you who have built relationships in the church, can I encourage you to be like Naomi? And to be open about the challenges that you're facing 
and especially open with the Lord. Do you see how Naomi talks about this? The Lord has brought me back empty. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. It's a lament. Her life is a train wreck. And she recognizes God's hand in it. She's lamenting the situation she finds herself in. Now in chapter 1, the author uses the term return. It's normally translated 12 times. In the Hebrew, it's the verb shuv, which means to turn or repent. The writer wants us to recognize that Naomi recognizes herself that what she did was not right in God's eyes. And she's turning back to him, but she's doing it really reductively. She wants to be known as someone who's bitter. And her bitterness comes because of the way she feels the Lord has dealt with her. Now, I want to encourage you to be real about your faith. Being a Christian is not, as we would say, a bed of roses. It's not always going to be easy and nice. Sometimes things are going to be really hard. We thought this morning, for those of you here, about the disciples in the boat and how they were obeying the Lord Jesus. But they were in agony, agony, as they sought to do what he had told them. And it may well be that as you faithfully follow the Lord, you have some very dark providences. And I want to encourage you to be open with the Lord about those and appropriately open with your brothers and sisters here. Because our faith is not a make-believe faith. It's not like a fairy story where everything is going to be made beautifully right in our lives now, that the fairy godmother is going to appear and wave her wand and make everything wonderful for us. In this country, we are massively privileged, but we have brothers and sisters throughout the world who are starving, um, who face all kinds of imprisonment and punishments and so on for their faith, or just live in circumstances that to us seem absolutely appalling through no fault of their own. And if we think about the Psalms and the psalmist and how he pours his anguish out to God, I want to encourage you to be real and honest in the way that you engage with the Lord. That's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, Naomi's wrong. Do you see, she says in verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, right next to her is standing a young woman called Ruth. Naomi doesn't recognize it at this moment, but Ruth is going to be the cause of immense blessing for Naomi. God hasn't brought Naomi back empty. He's brought Naomi back with all that she would need for her life to be fulfilled in a way she never dreamt possible. And I want to say the same to you. Yes, it may look grim at the moment, and it might not be in this life that you see God's provision, but he has promised you an eternal provision of riches in the Lord Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand. 
So there is provision coming that is glorious and wonderful. And our light afflictions, which last just for this life, are not to be compared with the weight of glory that Jesus will bestow on his own. So it's never right for us to say, the Lord has left us empty. No. The Lord graciously and wonderfully fills us in the provision he's made in Jesus Christ. But there's another thing I want you to notice here, please. And that is, how does Ruth respond? If you were Ruth, and you had made this great undertaking to follow Naomi and be faithful to Naomi and help and support and serve and spend your life for Naomi, how would you feel when she, talking to all her people in Bethlehem, all strangers to you about whom you know nothing, but you know you're depending on their goodwill, as it were, for your future, humanly speaking, how do you feel when Naomi completely ignores you? It's as if you don't exist. I'm not going to talk about this woman. She's irrelevant. I'm telling you about myself. The Lord's judged me. I'm coming back. It's wretched. Don't call me, don't call me bitter. I'm over. And there's Ruth. Uh, what about me? But you see, the extraordinary thing about Ruth, and it is extraordinary, I think, <clears throat> is that she had made her promise that we read about in verse 16 of chapter 1 and so on. She made a promise that she would show Naomi chesed, faithful covenant love. And she's going to do that whether Naomi ignores her or cherishes her doesn't matter. She's going to treat Naomi with love and compassion and service, as we will see later in the book, if you ever have me back. Here's the point. The Lord Jesus Christ made a covenant with the Father that he would come and he would make the walk of shame. We thought about Naomi going out full The Lord Jesus Christ comes from the fullest place, glory. And he comes down and he lays it aside and he walks into the foreign land, our earth, and there he's extraordinarily abused and rejected and he returns home to the Father, bearing shame and scoffing rude, And there isn't a welcome for him. The father turns his face away. And the Lord Jesus Christ walks this extraordinarily awful and terrible walk of shame to the cross and that wretched, despised, horrendous death. The worst bit of which was not the physical sufferings, It was the spiritual desolation of the Father deserting him. For Jesus, it was the ultimate walk of shame. But the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is truly chesed love. Despite the fact that you and I were his enemies, while we were enemies, Christ died 
for us. It's remarkable, isn't it? Remarkable. And Ruth, in her extraordinary attitude and service, is picturing for us, just in a mild way, the amazing compassion and determination of Jesus Christ to fulfill his covenant promises for his people. Praise him. And all honor to Ruth for following through her undertaking to Naomi. <clears throat> Naomi, verse 22, who returned from the country of Moab. Do you see all this returning, returning, shuv, they're turning back. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So in their calendar, in Israel, they had one month of the barley harvest, and it was immediately followed by one month of the wheat harvest, and then the celebration of Pentecost. So the picture here is of people completely empty, nothing in their hands to bring, returning to Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread, um, at the beginning of these wonderful harvests which mark the end um, of, of the famine. And it's a picture of the returning sinner finding grace and every provision in God's grace. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? They come from their desperate circumstances in Moab back to the house of bread and there God is providing richly for his people as they turn to him. So I think the application is obvious, but let me make it. You and I live imperfect lives, deeply, deeply flawed, imperfect lives. And from that, we need to repent, to turn, to turn constantly from our own wishes and drives, to submit ourselves to the directions and requirements of our loving God. And as we do that, we access the fullness that there is in the treasure stores of Almighty God. Forgiveness, peace, purpose, love, grace, delight, joy. Repentance may feel hard, and Naomi does it grudgingly, doesn't she? She's not happy, but she is obedient in all that's going on, she is, above everything else, obedient, however badly she does it. And in her obedience, the Lord is going to meet her and richly bless her. And the first indications of these um, intentions of the Lord are the fact that it's the barley harvest and soon to be the wheat harvest. So you and I, we may not feel a little bit like repenting and turning and coming back to the Lord, it may be that you're enjoying whatever it is that you're doing and you know it's not God's purpose or will for you. You know it's sin, but you're determined, really struggling, wanting. Oh, it's a battle. And you come reluctantly, fighting every inch of the way. I really don't want to go to church tonight. I don't want to be in Sunday school. I don't want to have to obey this. I'd much rather follow the way of the world or so on. But as you come, however falteringly, however imperfectly, in repentance and faith, the Lord meets you not with meager measure, but with full in Jesus Christ. 
And may I just say something about the issue of our personal relationships? I think it applies here as well. Um, I speak from a position of a little bit of pain at the moment over a relationship that's gone quite badly wrong. We are being very unhelpful if our attitude towards brothers and sisters is, unless you come with a repentance that is acceptable to me, I'm not interested. You've got to make it good. You really, really upset me. What you did was obviously wrong. Unless you come back with a completely open and and sort of prostrate repentance saying how desperately sorry you are and all the rest, I'm not interested. No. However imperfect the repentance is, however grudging the apology, our purpose, our function, our responsibility is to demonstrate grace to one another. And that is how a church can exist well with one another and not harbor grudges and enmity. And uh, we see that here as, as Naomi comes with this very, very faulty, flaky repentance, her lament, her bitterness, and yet God is going to richly bless her in it. So may I encourage you, may I encourage you. We're all fallen sinners. We all get things wrong, and sometimes badly wrong. Let's exercise grace and love and patience with each other, however flawed our interactions may be. And then finally, um, a portent of good things to come. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Um, So, could I encourage you to turn with me to Judges chapter 6? Judges chapter 6 and verse 11, if you don't have it, I'll just read this bit to you. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abazarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So at this stage, there's rebellion. Uh, the people of Israel are being punished. The mechanism the Lord is using is a military invasion by the Midianites, who are depriving the people of food and drink and so on. And so this man, Gideon, is hiding um, in a cistern, and he's trying to beat out there um, some wheat or whatever, Um, so that the Midianites don't see it and don't come and take it from him. And uh, verse 12, The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Here's this man cringing, (laughs) out of sight, trying to beat out some food for his family. And the angel says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And you can just imagine Gideon, can't you, kind of looking over his shoulder. Who's that? It can't be me. It can't be me. Well, the phrase there, mighty man of valor, is exactly the same phrase here as uh, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Baraz, a worthy man. So normally, the phrase would mean a mighty man in, in military terms, somebody who is brave and able, but also who has the resources to be a mighty man of valor. He can afford all the kit and equipment that he needs in order to go to war. When there is no military context, then it means somebody uh, who is of very high standing in society and wealthy. 
So Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a wealthy, notable man of high character and standing in the society of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, I don't want to spoil the rest of the story for you, but Boaz, as a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, comes to be the kinsman redeemer for Naomi and uh, Ruth. Um, And it was a very expensive undertaking. All that he's going to do requires him both to be a man of tremendous integrity because Ruth is a very vulnerable woman. It would have been very easy for her to be taken advantage of. In fact, if you read the story on, you'll see how she's warned that she mustn't go near the men in the field because they will abuse her. And Boaz could have done that. And the way that um, Naomi engineers it, that leaves it a bit open to that. But he won't. He's a man of integrity and honor. But also, what he's going to do for them requires significant resource. And he is a wealthy man who can afford to do what they need. So at this stage in the story, there's a pivot. There's a pivot from the decline in sin and wretchedness um, with death and poverty and loss of standing and coming home bitter and twisted. But here in chapter 2, verse 1, it pivots. And suddenly there's some hope glimmering on the horizon that there is somebody who is in a position to help. Now, as you prepare to face the rest of this working week, I want to apply that to you. We naturally think that we're good people, don't we? We're nice people, we're able people, we've got skills and abilities, and we make our way through life, we think, because uh, we're able to do that and so on. In our more clear-sighted moments, we recognize that actually we're very weak. Um, Every moment of every day, we're upheld by the Lord's goodness. um, And all that we have, it's not our own. It's a gift from him. And in return, we have repaid him incredibly poorly. Our condition is actually fairly wretched. And particularly as unconverted, non-Christian people, our position is dire. We truly are refugees with nothing. And we desperately need someone who has the honor, integrity, and resource to help. And that's why we turn with humble thanksgiving and praise to Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, because he is of the utmost integrity and he has every resource needed to provide for you and I. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian and you recognize that Lord Jesus Christ is not your master and king, can I urge you to reflect on this, that you need help from someone who is honest and upright perfect and who has the resource to do all that you need the resource to give you peace with the father the resource to give you a hope a resource to give you eternal life a resource to give you joy and purpose and meaning and if you're a christian here tonight 
And I want to encourage you in thanksgiving and worship that you have one who stood forward for you, who through his life and death and resurrection has purchased for you all that you could possibly want or need. It's a glorious story, isn't it? And how wretched of us, if blind to all of this, we just bumble through life thinking that we've put it all together ourselves. No, no. Like Naomi and Ruth, we so need someone who can help and do it all perfectly well. Praise God. That person is Jesus. And so this week, I want to urge you to love your Savior, to serve your Savior, to exalt your Savior, to recognize that following Jesus is the primary calling on your life. Whatever it is you have to do for work or time tomorrow, first of all, Jesus. Last of all, Jesus. Praise God. Jesus is Lord, and for those of us who follow him, he has only good.